Well, hello there, all you Neonish souls. This is Inkwave speaking, and welcome to another Inka podcast episode. I am greeting you in this beautiful winter morning. Like snow is snowing all over the Poland, and it's minus few Celsius degrees. And I'm greeting you from over my cinnamon coffee. Why is it filled with cinnamon? You will get to know later. Because the subject of today's episode is everything you want to know about. Dune, but you are afraid to ask. But before we go Adrem, I would like to say a few words, because last week was full of Spotify wrapped and I am deeply stunned to say this and I am deeply <laughs> honored, I would say, because I've seen this in podcast in some of your Spotify wrapped and I just wanted to use this occasion to say a huge thank you to all you who are listening to this. Thank you for your patience for my... <laughs> <laughs> for my pauses between the episodes, but well, you know, unfortunately podcasting isn't my main job, so I just must use every available slot of time um, in my life to record this, so your attention and your support is well i i know how it sounds i know it sounds simple but it comes from the bottom of my neonish heart and i am very grateful for you also thanks once again oh i had to take a little pause to take a sip of my coffee and we are ready to move on so i am very happy to see how this year as december is full of premieres and full of great pop culture content because we had a Denis Villeneuve Dune adaptation in cinemas last month and this month we will be <laughs> blessed to see The Matrix 4th. Some of you may know that I am waiting for this piece so much and the another piece I am waiting even way more for because you all know that I am total Witcher head is the premiere of second season of Witcher Netflix. So probably this uh, month will be full of Inca podcast episodes because this is the only place where I can do my <laughs> super long nerd talks. Well, they will be. They are they are super long. I suppose this podcast episode will be a little bit long because I will have to make like part it, part the recording into various days because I don't know if I will be able to record it all at once. Okay, without further introductions, I would like to to move on to our main dish, our main course. And this is, of course, the Dune. The Dune is complex, the Dune as a giant complex of various movie adaptations, games and all this stuff. And, of course, the most important, the cycle of books. We have few of the book Dune series. We have the Rise of the Atreides series, which is the actual Dune, which includes Dune, Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. We have the Reign and Fall of the God Emperor, which includes the God Emperor of Dune. And we have the Return from Scattering, which includes Heretics of Dune, Chapter House Dune, and later wrote by Brian Herbert, Frank Herbert's son, and Anderson, Hunters of Dune and Sandworms of Dune. I personally own only those books 
uh, written by Frank Herbert and I wanted to start my journey with Dune with them. And this Inca podcast episode will include only things from the Dune itself. And I mean the Dune from 1965, from the rise of treats. Because as you can see, there are a lot, a lot a lot of it and if i wanted to go down this rabbit hole like fully well who knows maybe we will do this in the future but right now i wanted to focus more on the universe of dune and on the adaptations especially the villain of adaptation that i completely fall in love with but let's get back to the books because it's not all we aren't done yet we aren't done uh, we have also the Belterian Jihad, which are like Legends of Dune's prequel trilogy, also written by Brian Herbert with Kevin J. Anderson, which includes Great Schools of Dune. And we have the Corinoland Imperium. It is like a prelude to Dune itself uh, by Brian Herbert and Anderson, which includes Heroes of Dune series. So now you can see how complex and sophisticated and full of content is this world. And we are talking only about the books, we are talking only about the books. And we have also the another things, another movies and another games. So I want to start this Inco podcast titled Everything you want to know about Dune but you are afraid to ask with a disclaimer that you won't know everything. <laughs> after listening to this podcast, but I would say it will be a nice introduction to this world and a nice place to begin with. So let's start with telling you a little bit about the Dune's plot because you will be needing it later to understand all the references I will be talking about. So if you haven't seen either Dune movie by Villeneuve or the movie by Lynch or read the first book and you are very much keen on spoilers, you don't want to hear anything, unfortunately, I want to ask you <laughs> to not to listen to this Inca podcast episode until you do, but if you aren't afraid of a little spoilers, I promise I will be very careful to not spoil you the whole joy of reading it, but well, you can always go back here when you, whenever you want. But to be honest, this world is so complex and so full of references that even if I told you the whole plot, I suppose you will be very um, enjoying this piece. So, well, the choice is yours. I'm here, you know where to find me. So, Dune is set in a distant future, but of our own world. World which went through some major changes. I will say more about those major changes later, but now I want to focus more on the plot. So now it reminds more of the medieval world, but well, of course in the interstellar version, and it's inhabited by the feudal society in which various noble houses control planets and their resources. It tells the story of young Paul Atreides, whose family accepts the stewardship over the planet Arrakis. Everything starts on the ocean planet Caladan, which is ruled by Duke Leto of House Atreides, who is Paul Atreides' father. He is assigned by the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV to serve as a ruler of planet Arrakis. Planet Arrakis is a place which is very important for the some strategic reasons, because this is the only source of the melange, the spice, which is kind of drug that extends life and in 
enhances mental abilities. For example, it makes space navigation possible because it requires kind of multidimensional awareness and foresight that only this drug can provide. So whoever has its hand over the planet Arrakis, he has its hand over whole universe, I would say, because it is full of people who are deeply addicted to the spice. No wonder why this Padishah Emperor Shaddam, who rules whole universe, decides to switch the people, switch the houses that have control over Arrakis. For centuries, Arrakis was controlled by House Harkonnen, who are like pure villains of the story, like they have they have no good reasons to like them. They are so clearly to be hated. It reminds me of one of the quotes that I've heard about it. Because Dune is said to be more about the ecology and less about the psychology and anthropology. And it can be very well felt up at this very early point. While Harkonnens are very clear and pure villains, House of Atreides is like the absolutely classical example of protagonism. Prince Leto Atreides is very handsome, very good, very noble man who deserves nothing but respect. His subjects are loyal to him and he is deeply loved wherever he goes. So it explains why Padishah Emperor isn't such a fan of Prince Leto and he is a little bit, I would say, afraid of him. Up to this point, you probably may suspect that this whole Arrakis stewardship is a little bit fake and maybe bait. But House of Atreides are very loyal and a little bit naive, so they don't see it and they go for it and they decide to inhabit this planet. Of course, Prince Leto Atreides is very noble and very good and blah, 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 you know everything. And he immediately decides to change the face of Arrakis and the people ruling it. So up to this point, Arrakis was exploited by Harkonnens in a very severe and brutal way. They were hated by native inhabitants of this planet, by Fremens, the people of desert, which are the only inhabitants of this planet, when you refer to being a human, of course, and we will go to that later. Prince Leto decides to make it like more of the partnership between House of Treats and Fremens. But unfortunately, he doesn't get a chance because Padishah Emperor hires Harkonnens to get and claim Arrakis back. And that would be the end of the House of Treats because this battle took almost all of the men from this house. But of course, our main character, Paul Atreides, and his mother, Lady Jessica, are given a chance to escape. They escape to the Fremens, they escape to the desert people, but this is where the old fun begins, because probably some of you may be like, oh my god, Inca Wave, you told us, you just told us that it was a bait. Well, we are on the very beginning of our super duper long series of books, so this is no spoiler. <laughs> this is no spoiler. Sip of coffee, sorry. So, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. It's very good. Oh, and why the coffee is filled with cinnamon? The coffee is filled with cinnamon because in the books Melange is said to be scented and tasted as a cinnamon. So this is how I imagined it and during watching the villainous movie and during reading all of the books I've read I was drinking something with cinnamon. <laughs> I would say that even when I was in a cinema, I was holding the cinnamon stick in my mouth. <laughs> so well, this is... I think I am filled with the enthusiasm of Neotype. There is a saying in my language that there isn't a bigger enthusiasm anywhere than the enthusiasm of a neotype. And I am actually very shortly in Dion's world and I'm at this stage where everything seems to be so fascinating and so inspirational and I am completely hypnotized by this. So I suppose this, this may sound funny for people who know Dune for a longer period of time. So, up at this point, some of you may start to wonder, what is it with those Fremens? If they are so full of will to fight, if they are so distrustful and so focused on the good of their own tribe, why did they let Lady Jessica and her son into their community? Why they didn't stop them? Why they didn't abandon them? Why they didn't kill them? Because that would be something they would do without any hesitation if that was was any Harkonnen. And please consider the fact that Prince Leto didn't actually had a chance to fulfill his promises gave to Fremens because the Harkonnens attack came very very soon. So Fremens didn't know Atreids as a good people because they didn't know them at all. And here we have to make a little pause in our going through the Dune plot very very fast because we need to start our thoughts and analysis of Dune and Fremens and the religious beliefs right here because it is a great moment to start. So, do you remember when I was telling you that before Atreides came to Arrakis, Harkonnens were one to be ruling this Dune and they exploited it in a very severe way. But there was something very important and very big that I didn't tell you about up to this point and it is the existence of worms. Worms are giant animals that live in the sand, live in the desert, they swim in it like it was a giant ocean and they are very sensitive to every movement which is made on the surface of the sand. And when I say those guys are huge, I mean they are really, really huge. Their length come up to 400 meters and their whole body is covered in some kind of very, very dense and hard scale that protects them from the hot of the sand. They are extremely dangerous, especially for the miners who work on the surface of the sand because they are attracted by the rhythmical sounds which the mining devices produce, so every trying to bring out the spice is connected with giant thread because it is the race with time. Miners have a very short period of time up to the moment when the rhythmical sounds will attract the worm. So from the point of view of anyone who wants to bring out the spice, worms need to be destroyed. But from Fremen's point of view, sandworms are something like 
gods. They call them Sheikhulut, they worship them, they call them their creators and they use it to produce the water of life. Water of life is some kind of drug-light substance that is created when Sheikhulut, little Sheikhulut, meets the water which is lethal to it. So when their contact happens, it creates the water of life. The problem is that the water of life is highly deadly even for ferments themselves. It's just the kind of very important part of their religious beliefs. It is used in the religious rituals and stuff like that. This is something very tribal and refers to tribal systems of beliefs as well as the saint orgies known from polytheistic religions. So, who can create the real water of life that can be used in those rituals. Only the reverend mother. The reverend mother body is so extremely well prepared to this situation that it possesses the kind of enzyme in its saliva who is able to change this water of death into water of life. During this process, Reverend Mother gets the access to all of the experiences of other Reverend Mothers who were before her and creates some kind of multidimensional awareness. If what comes to your mind right now are monks and preachers, I think it's a good connection because the best reverend mothers, the only reverend mothers that can come up to any society are from the Bene Gesserit order. And surprise, surprise, Lady Jessica is one of the Bene Gesserit. This organization is a key social, religious and political force in the world of Dune. This group is some kind of very exclusive sisterhood whose members train their bodies and minds through years of physical and mental conditioning to obtain some kind of superhuman powers and abilities that can seem magical to outsiders. Well, if you don't know physics, everything seems magical, so... <laughs> members who have acquired these arcanes of Bene Gesserit abilities are called Reverend Mothers. So right now it is all coming together. But of course Lady Jessica isn't the first Bene Gesserit to be visiting Dune because many many years ago, many many years before the Atreids even reached this planet, there was a lady called in Bene Gesserit slang Missionaria Protectiva who created the way for Lady Jessica to be accepted in Fremen's society. Missionaria Protectiva some kind instilled, inculated the myth of a messiah into the Fremen society. It came into so deeply that they didn't even have any hesitations when they saw Paul and saw Lady Jessica. They were just sure that this one is the one who will save them. From what you will ask? From the planet itself, because the greatest dream of every Fremen is to change the face of Arrakis into the place full of plants, full of water, full of rains, full of life. Actually, this messiah myth seems some kind of trap because Fremens, after those 3000 years, became the actual children of the desert, their embodiment. This desert is the home, the beautifulness, so it all brings out the paradox. This green planet, this 
promised land, this promised paradise, this return to the golden age from the past, installed in their awareness by Missionaria Productiva years ago, in result will destroy their identity, destroy their culture and everything they hold dear. It will kill their mother and in result themselves, so this messiah promise of life will come as death to them. Unfortunately, we can tell a lot about Fremens. We can tell that they are valorous, they are warlike, and they are very loyal, and they protect their tribe, but, well, they don't possess the ability to look forward very far. So, the moment they see Paul and Jessica, they immediately think they are their promised voice from other world who will save them who will bring them to prosperity. They start calling him Listen Al-Gaib, which is actually, in this particular situation, the same as Kvizat's Haderach in the world of Bene Gesserit, which is the perfect combination of man and woman brain, who will be the result of the very specific genetical selections run by this order and controlled through many, many years. As one of the most important important Bene Gesserit monks say Helena Mohaim, he will have an access to the areas that are unavailable for women from this order. At this moment it is for Paul to decide whether he is messiah or not. He has every abilities, he has every opportunities and he has the support of his mother, he has the acceptation of this community, but it is some kind of the prophecy fulfilling itself. Due to the fact that Paul Atreides is very sensitive to the spice, the moment he sets his foot on the sand, he feels that his physical and mental abilities are multidimensional, are becoming stronger than they ever been. He possesses the ability to foresee the time, to see the future, and immediately knows what to do to become the messiah for Fremens. There is only one problem. He can also see what future brings when he decides to become this messiah. He can see the jihad, the sent war all over the whole universe, which consumes the huge amount of human beings, and it is all because of this golden dream inscripted in Fremen's brains by Missionaria Protectiva and fulfilled in his own appearance on this planet. In the same time, he knows that he just must use this messiah myth to go through this situation and claim back his heritage. Don't let the death of his father go in vain. That's the moment when he starts racing with his own destiny. So what do we have here? We have here the unique mix of ecology, mysticism and religion, all in one planet, in Dune. Of course, according to human psychology and how brain works, this religion and cult of heroes is very adaptive answer for every anxiety and every uncertainty. So tribe like Fremen society is very well understandable to have such myth and fall for it. The ones completely responsible for possible jihad are people who come from another planet, who don't know Arrakis's home, who can of course feel how they belong here, but they actually never were one of the Fremens. 
And actually, I don't refer only to Lady Jessica and Paula Treat. I refer also to Liet Kines, imperial planetary researcher, who was living on Dune long before House Atreides even reached. He also knew Fremens very well and earned their deep respect. In completely good intentions, he wanted to help Fremens terraform Arrakis to adapt it to human needs. He used this messiah myth and changed the ecological recommendations into severe religious rules. Fremens themselves seen it as a salvation, as a being finally free from the history, as a children of slaves and people abandoned from other planets full of water. It is like getting up from the knees when you were kneeling all your life. The water for them is life and dominative symbol something very solid and final. For example, you can swear on water or vow an oath with it. In this world, when you spit on the ground before someone, it is not the sign of disrespect, but the opposite, the sign of ultimate respect, because you offered someone the moisture of your body. In fact, it put Fremen's beliefs at conflict, because they worship water and they worship Sheikh Hulud, the sandworms, to whom water is a deadly threat. Sooner or later that must have led to some kind of tragedy, I suppose. But they didn't want to notice it. The one who noticed it was Paul, their ruler. I know I promise you that I won't refer to other books from the series, but I have a fragment from Messiah of the Dune, which refers perfectly to this water paragraph we are talking about. It is the story told by old Fremen named Farouk, who took part in Jihad Wars and had an opportunity to see the ocean on his own eyes, finally, after all those years living on a desert planet. We went through the mountains of the planet where air was so filled with water I could barely breathe. Suddenly, in the valley, I saw something that my friends told me about so many, many times. Water. Water as the eye can see. We reached down the shore. I came into the water up to my waist. I drank it. It was bitter and I felt sick. But this beautifulness of sea stayed in me forever. One man came into this water and the completely other came out of it. I felt that I can remember my past. My past that I've never witnessed. I've looked all around with eyes which were open for everything literally everything. I've seen a dead corpse in the water, one of the killed by us. On the waves very close to me there was a giant piece of wood. I'm closing my eyes now and I can see this wood. On one of the edges it was black from the fire. On the water there was a uniform as well, scattered, dirty. I've looked at all those things and I understood why they are here. They are here because they want me to see it. You are the Telexian. You've seen a lot of seas. I've seen only one. But I know something about seas that you don't know. In the sea, Mother of Chaos was born, said Farouk. All covered in water, I came up to the shore and stood by the Kvizar Tavit. He didn't come into the water. He stood on the wet sand in a group of my soldiers, as scared as he. He was looking me with the eyes, who knew that I came to some knowledge that he didn't possess. I became the water creature and I scared him a lot. This water healed me from jihad and he must have realized this at this very moment. 
I won't go further, because I promised you we will focus only on the first part of Dune, but I wanted to read you this fragment to show you where are the borders of Fremen's will to do the saint war led by the Messiah. But I feel deeply inside that I need to make a big disclaimer here, because you must remember that Dune was written by Frank Herbert over 50 years ago. If I told you that word has gone through major changes from this date up to today, that would be an understatement. Author of the novel was growing up and creating in times when Wahhabism, the fundamental Muslim trend, was present in everyday life. He was raised in Christianity and then became Buddhist. He probably seen this radical war-like trend in Islam as something very interesting, something that can be reborn in centuries. It was very easy to him to include in his novels things as jihad, you know, from Dune. Jihad as a real saint war consuming human beings, not a path that every Muslim might go in his own brain, in his own mind. From one of the ways of growing in your faith, it became a bloody brutal war, infecting all of the planets. Professor Amir Hussain, an expert in cultural studies, claims that replacing inner jihad with a crusade is some kind of punch into values that Muslims hold dear and turning them into something completely opposite. From the other hand, Frank Herbert put into those metaphorical Muslims in the bodies of Fremens the power, the agency, the way to change the world into something better. So, as you can see, way wiser brains than mine are still hesitating how to treat this Muslim metaphor, so I will just leave you with it, I will just leave you with this thought. But fortunately, jihad concept wasn't the only one thing that Frank Herbert took from Muslim culture. While creating Fremens, Herbert was inspired by Bedouins from Saqqara Desert, but also Caucasian hunters, vide Jacob's language, this sacred code of them, that they used in warlike situations, but also by Bushmen from Kalahari, the name Children of the Desert came from this, those Bushmen see themselves as a kind of embodiment of antelopes, because antelopes is the embodiment of richness, the organizer of life after life. You can't kill her just like that. The only time when you can kill her is the sacral situation, the sacrifice. They have analogical relation to the sandworm, Sheikh Hulut, because in Arabian Sheikh Hulut means something that is eternal. Separately, Shai means thing and Kulut means eternal. So metaphorically it means old father eternity or old man of the desert. It isn't the only inspiration took from Arabian language. For example, listen Al-Gaib that I mentioned before means the voice from the outer world, because separately Lisan means tongue and Al-Gaib means unseen or unknown. Within Islam, Al-Gaib can refer to what is only known to Allah and thus can also mean a matter of faith. What more, Arrakis itself took its name from Arabian language as well, because Arrakis comes from Mudrakonis, a real star that was traditionally called Arrakis in Arabic catalogues by astronomers such as the Persian Azofi and the Turk Ulugbek. It means dancer or a trotting camel. 
So now when you have full context and full picture of the situation, you can see how deeply fragments from Frank Herbert's novel are connected with Muslims. Sheikh Hulud Sandworm, the creator, is the reference to Allah. Let it be the will of Sheikh Hulud means just Inshallah. But this particular jihad wasn't the one in the world of Dune. Let's get into the time machine and travel back in time to the Bolterian age, way before Paul Atreid, Letho his father or even grandfather or even grand-grandfather was born. And here I am again breaking my own rule and referring to the book which is not the first Dune part. So, the Bolterian Jihad is mentioned in the second part of the books in Messiah of Dune, but it also has a whole book devoted only to the subject, the one of the Dune prequels written by Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson, titled, no surprises here, Bolterian Jihad. The action of the book begins when the Cymex attack the planet Salus Secundus, the capital of an alliance of people known as the League of the Noble. Cymex were once people who underwent surgery to transfer their brains to special tanks, enabling them to be connected to the bodies of robots. Thanks to this, they could live for hundreds of years taking various physical forms. The 20 oldest Cymex who called themselves Titans took power over the center they used thinking machines that soon turned against the Titans. So what do we have here is the classical example of robot rebellion. The power in the universe was then taken over by an artificial intelligence that called itself the Universal Mind or Ominous. One of the military commanders on Salus Secundus is Xavier Harkonnen. His fiancée is Serena Butler, the daughter of a viceroy of the League of the Noble Ones who fight for the rights of oppressed people. Serena is abducted to the Earth, hello our planet, which is under the control of Ominous, where she is captured by the cruel and ruthless robot Erasmus. Serena meets Vorian Atreides, son of the Titan commander, who is a trusted servant of the machines. It turns out that Serena is pregnant with Xavier's and gives birth to a son, whom she names Manion. A small child is burdened for Erasm robot, who decides to kill him in execution. This shocking death was the last straw that breaks the camel's back, and it started the human rebellion against machines. It was an impetus for oppressed people to start an uprising on Earth that will be called later the Bolterian Jihad. The uprising is led by Ibis Jinja, who, together with Volrian Atreides, helps Serena escape to her home planet. On the spot, it turns out that Xavier is married to Serena's younger sister. What is the result of this story, apart, of course, from acknowledging the fact that Xavier was the first schmuck to start the trend running in Harkonnen's family? It resulted in the most important rule from Bolterian Jihad. You will not create a machine in the image of human brain because men cannot be replaced. When I was gathering the sources and doing research to this podcast, I've asked you on my Instagram stories if there is any question you want to ask me before I will record it. I've received one that was very interesting and caught things just at the point. It was question why on earth, if Dune is hard science fiction, there is no machines and no technology in it? The answer to this question is Bolterian Jihad. 
but in the same time, probably you know it by now, interstellar travels are still possible in this world, as well as the complicated mathematic equations. So how is it possible without high robotic technology, you may ask? The answer to the lack of artificial intelligence is the actual human intelligence. The answer to the lack of computers is biological computer called Mentat. A Mentat was a profession or discipline that was developed as a replacement to the computers and other thinking machines following the Bulterian Jihad that banned the creation of it. Among Spacing Guild and Bene Gesserit, it took some similar functions that was previously fulfilled by the machines. Mentats were used extensively by the great houses, primarily as a political advisors. Thanks to their vast memories and ability to organize huge amounts of data, they often provided valuable insights that would otherwise be lost. Limited mental training was also used to augment individuals destined for other political or military roles. For example, extraordinary abilities that Paul showed when he was very young was interpreted to be the sign that he would make a great mentor if he wanted to. You needed to be very talented to enter this guild and complete the training. They were something luxurious, very unique, only rich people could afford them, so no wonder why Harkonnen didn't kill Thothir Hawat, the mentat of Prince Leto, after taking Arrakis back. But mentats and Bene Gesserit aren't the only guilds present in Dune world. After them, the Spacing Guild was the third mental physical training school established following Bulterian Jihad. The genesis of the guild's eventual monopoly on space travel, transport and interstellar banking is taken as the beginning point of the imperial calendar. Details of the guild's emerge are contentious, although it is believed they emerge as a serious political and economic force around the time of the Great Convention. While the exact evolution of the guild monopoly on faster-than-light space travel is not given, they do nonetheless wield this formidable power throughout the history of the Corina Empire, a time known as Guild Peace. Paul Atreides was the first emperor to check the power of the guild through control of the spice melange, although they remained a significant political power. What is strictly related to the existence of Spacing Guild is an organization called CHOAM, which means Combined Onetti Ober Advancer Mercantiles. It essentially controls all economic affairs across the whole cosmos, although it relies on the Spacing Guild for transport across the space because they have monopoly on faster than light travels. CHOAM touched almost all products the guild will transport, from art forms to technology and, of course, Melange. Many of the great houses depend on CHOAM profits and an enormous proportion of those depend on Melange. Hmm, yikes, that was a long journey. But now with a hand over my heart and a clear conscience, I can say that I've done everything I can to tell you everything you want to know about Dune but you're afraid to ask. So, up at this point, you have a great knowledge over Dune canon and world, and I think it is high time that we moved to something that we've been all waiting for, the new Villeneuve's movie. But before we go to that, I want to say to you that apart from 20 books from this lore, what you have here is also two board games, one card game, five comic graphic novels, five video games, 
three-part miniseries plus following sequel plus spin-off and two full-length movies directed by Lynch and Villeneuve. This is a lot to watch and a lot to witness. I would like to focus only on the movie adaptations, but one thing that may be interesting for you is the fact that in June 2019 it was announced that Legendary Television will be producing a spin-off television series to this previously released three-part miniseries called Dune the Sisterhood. The series will focus on the Bene Gesserit and will serve as a prequel to the 2021 film, because Villeneuve will direct the series plot with John Spade writing the screenplay and both will serve as executive producers alongside Brian Herbert. But now let's leave this TV miniseries subject when we have something like this, such a masterpiece in our cinemas. As some of you may know by now, I've started my adventure with Doom from, I suppose, the worst point I could ever start with. I started with movie from 1984 directed by David Lynch. What do I want to say about this adaptation? Only one sentence. If I was on LSD, I would draw way more of this movie than I did. Maybe I was too sober? I have no idea. But it was trippy as hell. It was like a chaotic fever dream. The funniest thing about this all is the fact that later some of my friends that were a great David Lynch fan told me that this is one of his worst movies and that I really shouldn't have started my adventure with Dune from that one. I've heard that David Lynch himself told that after this project he will never do anything like this again and he will never go to any compromises with the producers. While I don't consider myself a great expert or fan of David Lynch's movies, I will just leave it and trust their opinion. But what I feel completely overwhelmed with is Denis Villeneuve's adaptation. Holy moly, what a masterpiece was it. The score was dope, the shots and transitions were dope and the cast were dope. I'm completely overwhelmed with how perfect it was and I'm blessed to see this on the big screen and to be honest, after recording this episode, I suppose I will go to the cinema to see it once again just to use the occasion that it is still available in cinemas. I know that probably around January I will be able to see this on the internet streaming platforms, but this is not the same. This is such an ultimate feast for eyes, so aesthetically pleasing, festive that I can't even. But first things first. What we can hear before even the title of movie is on the screen is the marvelous soundtrack by Hans Zimmer. This man needs no introduction, he's probably one of the most popular composers of movie and game music. But he really did outdone himself on this one, I can show you that. Just close your eyes and listen.
singing, yelling, chanting, whispering, layered choirs, throat singing, trance drums, stunning powerful bagpipes as a cherry at the top of a cake, and it all based on the breathtaking sound of church organs very characteristic to Hans Zimmer music. You may know it, for example, from Interstellar movie. This score is very exclusive and refers to Dune novel on so many deep levels, I can't even. It is probably thanks to the fact that Hans Zimmer was a great fan of Frank Hambert's novels and wanted to make this score something like a second language of the movie something that will show you more than only what is on the screen. If you want to go deeper into that rabbit hole, I recommend you checking out the Thomas Flight material on YouTube about it, because I came across it when I was preparing myself and doing research to this podcast. He watched the whole Dune movie without any music in any soundtrack, and then compared it to the regular one. As years go by, movies and game soundtracks are still at the very top of my Spotify playlists, this is like my absolutely favorite kind of music. So you can imagine that I could talk about the score for a whole episode. What definitely deserves full attention is this throat singer I mentioned to you before. This is something we start our movie with, because the very first words we can hear are dreams are messages from the deep, sunk in throat singing language of the Sardukars. We have the chance to meet them later on, as the film goes by. The Sardukars were the allied military force of the Padishah Emperor who served prominently during the Corino Empire. They were re-owned and feared throughout the known universe as their fanatical zeal, superior fighting abilities and their sheer ruthlessness. Their motto was, we are Sardukars, Emperor's Blade, whoever stands against us will die. This is something that can be very well felt during the scene of their training on the planet Salusa Secundus. By the way, Salusa Secundus was the third planet in the Gamma Waping star system and the designated homeworld of House Corino, the very same Padishah Emperor was from. Later it became a prison planet after the migration of the royal court to the paradise planet Kaitan. That was a very harsh place with many wild beasts, extreme temperatures and difficult terrain. What was the purpose of its existence? The purpose of its existence was to train people who will be endurant to any conditions, that will overcome any obstacle because they've seen hell they're lived through it. By the way, a little bit of easter egg here because... Paul Atreides discovered this fact, discovered where Sardaukaus were so endurant to anything. He wanted to recreate something like this with Fremens, as the Arrakis was a planet very difficult to live on as well. If there are any fans of Warhammer 40k here, I must admit that this Sardaukar scenes on Salusa Secundus is probably the closest we reach to Warhammer movie. But this stunning training scene isn't the only thing that film enhanced the story with. The whole plot starts with the Herald of Change, the messenger of Padishah Emperor, who arrives at Kaladan to tell the will of Shaddam and transfer orders to Prince Letho and his family. This scene was the clear way of showing the audience main political and social forces ruling the universe, the hierarchy of it and the logistic organization of it. But up at this point of my podcast you probably know it all, so I am sure you wouldn't need it because you know it all by now. 
By the way, this is the first moment when mentats are used. This is this very moment when Thafir Hawat eyes turned into blank as he solves sophisticated mathematician equations in his head and processes the data. What deserves undivided attention is also Paul using the voice for the first time. This is a very intimate scene, showing the relationship between him and his mother from Bene Gesserit. She shows her soft, warm and devoted motherly side, as well as the severe Bene Gesserit side. Also, the way directors decided to present using the voice was something that caused chills going down my spine. At first you can see his mouth moving and then with the delay comes very low, very intimidating voice. This is something that speaks to me way more than screaming as I know from other Dune's adaptations. Those three are examples of scenes that were in movie but weren't included in the book. Usually this situation is reverse. So what did film skip? What film definitely doesn't give off is the background of Dr. Wellington Yue. He was a Sook doctor and agent of Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, who served House Atreus as a personal physician. He graduated from Sook school and married Wona Marcus. For Sook imperial conditioning, symbolized by the diamond tattoo on his forehead, he supposedly makes the subject incapable of inflicting harm, but the Baron's twisted mentor Peter de Vries found a workaround torturing his wife. He just broke it. The Baron has taken U.S. wife Wana prisoner, threatening her with torture and death unless U.A. complies with his demands. Jessica also knows her knowledge that Wana was a Bene Gesserit slain by Harkonnens hearing his hate when speaking about them. Despite the fact that traitors are usually the ones to be hated, and it is very natural, and the fact that Dune is already full of binary, very black and white characters, I think this background of U.A.'s story makes things a little bit more complex. We also must mention the fact that he tried to assassinate Vlad Harkonnen at his last attempt. Unfortunately, it didn't work out, so we are very sad about it. What deserves all love and devotion is the gender swap of Liet Kines. I've told about this character before. He was the son of Pardot Kines and father of Shani, who became the concubine of Paul Atreides later. Liet was a prominent imperial planetologist and ecologist of Varrakis, the judge of change and the secret leader of the Fremen at the time House Atreides took control of Varrakis. In Dune 2021, he was portrayed by the Queen Sharon Duncan Brewster. And honestly, this girl slays. She is the queen. I am completely overwhelmed with how beautifully he portrayed and how complex is Liet Kines in her role. When I look into those sparkling, sharpest knife eyes, I definitely understand why Fremens would do anything for her and treated her will as a god's will. In the book, Liet Kines was described like this. As a foremost expert on the planet Dune, at the ways of its people, Dr. Lietkines' relationship to Dune goes beyond mere duty, an imperial outsider tasked with overseeing the transfer of power on the planet. Her service to House Atreides is complicated by a spiritual connection to both the population and the wild beauty of the planet itself. I can see it all in Sharon Duncan Brewster's appearance on the screen. I can see it in the every movement she makes. She also is the first one to show something that I completely didn't expect to be in the first part of the Dune movie. Fremen's riding the Shea Hulud's. When my friend, with who I was in the cinema, saw this, she didn't read the book, she was like, can she be even more cool than that? Is it possible? Can she be more cool? I think she can't be. 
While Lietkine's character got second life thanks to this villain of adaptation, there were some characters that didn't even have a chance to be on the screen. One of them was Count Fering, very interesting and mysterious character. He was the assassin and political tactician, the advisor to Emperor Shaddam Karin IV. He was a prominent member of House Fenring, house major that had long been aligned to House Corino. The most important thing about him is the fact that Paul didn't see him in any of his future visions. At the very end of the book, he realizes that Hasmir Fenring was plotting right before his nose and he didn't know anything about it. He discovered that Fenring was almost Kvizat Haderach, someone very similar to him, but not good enough to be claimed one. This leads us to the very important fact about Paul's visions. They have some limitations. For example, Paul can't see anyone who can foresee future as well. For example, Fenring, who was almost Kvizat Hadrach, or any space guild navigators, because they can foresee the future thanks to the space addiction. This motif is used at the beginning of Messiah of Dune book, when Princess Irulana, the wife of Paul, plots against him and doesn't want him to know. She just does it in the presence of one of the Space Guild navigators, because she knows that that will protect her before Paul's almighty eyes. But Paul himself didn't claim anywhere that his visions are 100% truth. He compared them to just seeing with the own eyes. Sometimes you see a lot because you're at the top of the mountain, sometimes you can't see anything because you're in the dark or in the valley and your sight is limited. The great example of it is something that was included in the movie, the Jamis motif. In the books he was just killed by the first duel Paul made when he arrived to Fremen nation. But in the movie, in some of the visions of Paul, he was told to be his friend to show him the way of the desert. Unfortunately, he chooses the death path, which shows Paul very strictly that not all of his visions will come to life, because he doesn't have control over someone else's decisions. Who wasn't included in the first part of the movie was also Fate Rotha Harkonnen, the one of the antagonists. Fate was the younger nephew of Baron Vladimir Harkonnen of House Harkonnen. He figured heavily in the Baron's plans to gain power. He was nominated by Baron Vladimir as the Na Baron, heir to House Harkonnen. The Baron favored very much the young Fate Rotha over Fate's older brother, the Beast Gloss Raban, who was present in the movie. Fate was both intelligent and charismatic and was very dedicated to the Harkonnen culture of sadism and cruelty through potentially only due to his upbringing. He was very sensitive to woman's beauty, which was used by Maria Fenring, the wife of Count Fenring, I told you before, who seducted him and got pregnant because of this act. As you probably may suspect, the daughter of Fate Rotha and Maria Fenring will appear later as the Dune books go by. But the absence of Fate Rotha gives a great chance for Gloss Raban, played by Dave Bautista, to grow psychologically. In books he was described as animalistic and savage, called Beast. He is a brutal force of nature, securing the Baron's empire by any means necessary of those that cross him few live. Despite his undoubtful aggressiveness, what is never mentioned is his relationship with Fate Rotha. 
And this is something that makes me wonder how someone so aggressive is okay with the fact that his younger brother will be the heir to whole house Harkonnen. How does he accept it just like that? In Villeneuve's adaptation we can see a relationship between him and his uncle. Maybe it is a base for future conflict between him and his younger brother? We will see about that. That would be something more interesting than just stupid older brother who creates the path to intelligent younger one. Fate Rota was definitely the more ambitious brother. He was so impatient that he even wanted to assassinate his uncle before his natural death. He was so keen on having the power over whole house Harkonnen. Old Harkonnen survives this attack only thanks to mentat abilities of Thafir Hawat. Without that he would undoubtedly be dead. This is the moment when he realizes how dangerous is his heir. But I've mentioned Vlad many many times, but I didn't actually introduce him to you. So ladies and gentlemen, here comes Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, ultimate ruler of House Harkonnen and the chief architect in the demise of Duke Leto Atreides of House Atreides. He was so morbidly obese that he required suspensors harnesses to his flesh in order to walk. That was very characteristic for whole Harkonnen family. He has been experimenting with the diseases and willingly infecting himself, causing pulsating boils and crits to sprout all over his skin. This is something that was portrayed really chirpistic in David Lynch's adaptation and I will never see this scene again. Vlad Harkonnen was really twisted, really wicked man. Donald Mawat, makeup artist responsible for Stellan Skarsgård's appearance in this role, was very heavily inspired by various Marlon's Brando performances, especially when he played Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now movie. You can see this especially on the scene when Gloss Raban comes to meet his uncle in his medical room. I mean the severe mimics of his face, the hand stroking bald skull and the fact that his face is never visible in the full light. The ruler of Gyeri Prime Planet is really creepy guy. For example, he has a sexual kink for searching for young men looking just like Paul Atreides and sleeping with them and then torturing him and feast on them. And yes, you guessed right, David Lynch didn't think that skipping this part will be a good idea. Of course, he portrayed it. Thank God that Villeneuve's had more brains. Unfortunately, whole Dune is horny in a weird way. And this is something that even the biggest fan agree on. But I really don't want to let this digression consume me, so let's get back to the psychological performances of various actors. While books focus more on ecology and philosophy, the movie prefers to put the pun to a psychic. Because yes, the aesthetical and technological aspects of movie are great, but what makes it juicy are the stunning performances of the actors, because cast really outdone themselves. What I love most about this movie is the true chemistry that I can see between those actors. I really can believe in their relationships. Oscar Isaac and Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica and Prince Leto are really relationship goals and of course parentship goals. I can really believe that they three create a loving family. Timothy Chalamet, who's, by the way, one of the most beautiful humans ever existed. I am pretty sure that if alien came to Earth, they would abduct him first. 
So, Timothy Chalamet gave Paul a treat more human look. Kevin MacLachlan, who played him in the first Dune and David Lynch's movie, made him more like the robot, someone who doesn't have human feelings, someone who exists only in those visions, who is very twisted and can't be understood by regular people. When I look into Chalamet's eyes, I can see those hesitations, I can see the struggles he has, I can just see his human side. And when we compare Villeneuve's Paul to Lynch's Paul, we must compare as well Lynch's Shani to Villeneuve's Shani. As I love Sean Young's performance in Blade Runner with all my heart, those glassy, innocent eyes of Doe were perfect for Rachel's role. I honestly didn't like her performance as Shani in Lynch's movie. She was just too soft, too depending on Paul's decisions. Meanwhile, Villeneuve's Shani, played by Zendaya, is something else. She is really her mother's daughter. Strong and independent. When you look at her, you must think that this is Paul who is very lucky to have her by his side. I am really looking forward to see how their relationship will develop. I have a good feeling about it because I've heard that Timothy and Zendaya are great friends in real life. What also deserves all the awards is Jason Momoa's performance as Duncan Idaho. He was a swordsmaster in the service of House of Treats and one of Duke's Leto's right-hand men with Gurney Halleck and Thafir Hawat. Duncan Idaho was said to be very handsome. And this is something Jason Momoa could provide even without any harder efforts. But he did something more, something way more than only stunning choreographics of the fights. He showed real devotion to House Atreus and especially to Paul himself. You could really see the relationship, like between older and younger brothers between them. Fun fact about Momoa's performance is that he dedicated his fights to certain people. For example, one of the fights he dedicated to Khaleesi, as he played Khal Drogo previously in Game of Thrones, and one fight he dedicated to his son. This characteristic gesture of putting your hand with a sword up to your forehead, he did directly thinking about his son. And Duncan Idaho directly brings us to the last question I would like to ask. Will his Gola be in the second part of Dune? Because it is very well-known fact among Dune's lore that he will be eventually resurrected and go back at Paul's services. I am really curious about that. What I am also really curious about is the actor's pick for Fade Rotha. I've heard the rumor that if old Stellan Skarsgård is playing Vladimir Harkonnen, there is a big chance that younger one will be played by Alexander Skarsgård. That would be an ultimate goal for me, because Alexander Skarsgård is my many years crush, and Fade Rotha, one of my favorite antagonists of the series. The scene I am looking forward to see the most is Paul riding Sheikhulut for the first time. This scene in the book left me on the edge of my seat and I really want to see it on a big screen. Oh dear, what a journey it was. That was honestly the most challenging podcast episode I have ever recorded. It took me over a week of work. <laughs> I really can't believe it. Thank you for listening up to this point. Thank you for giving me your time. Thank you for your never-ending support. You have a really special place in my heart. <laughs> And now I am really, really curious about your opinion about Dune. Did you read the book? How many movies did you see? What are your thoughts about this lore? 
If you want, you can message me via DM on Instagram. And if you have another Dune fans amongst your friends, please send it to them. Maybe it will come in handy for them as well. So, thank you for your time once again and see you in the next episodes. Let's see what pop culture surprises will this December bring to us. And please remember, the spice must flow.